Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, no Whitney Biennial arrives without controversy. Two years ago, it was the Emmett Till painting. This year, we're talking about dirty philanthropy. This moment is, is a very important moment in history, in the history of cultural institutions. We're starting to really look not only at the makeup of the artists that are in this space, but also at what, you know, what's behind the white walls, right? Who's funding these walls? And then Blythe Robertson hates men. Unfortunately, she still wants to date them. I've written a whole book about having crushes on them, about dating them, but as a group, they have all the structural power over us, and that's what I don't like, and that's what I'm trying to navigate. Consider the following quote. While my company and the museum have distinct missions, both are important contributors to our society. The museum in question is the Whitney Museum, a storied cultural institution that contributes to society by exhibiting shows like 2017's An Incomplete History of Protest, which displayed and contextualized protest art. The company in question is Safariland, the U.S.-based manufacturer that contributes to society by producing tear gas and chemical munitions that are used by states to subdue, maim, and kill civilians. The quote equating the Whitney and Safariland's societal contributions is from the CEO Warren B. Canders, who is also the vice chairman of the Whitney Board of Directors. Protesters have demanded his removal for months now, but with the opening of the Whitney Biennial last week, those calls have grown louder than ever. Here to talk about what's at stake is arts and culture journalist Shireen Saad and Whitney Biennial artist Nicholas Galanin. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. We've described a little bit the issue at hand here, that the uh, vice chairman of the board of the Whitney has a company that has killed civilians. Talk to me a little bit about the protests that have been going on for a while now calling for his removal. Shireen? Yes, it's been several months now since uh, activists, including Decolonize This Place, a very important activist group in New York that has targeted several cultural institutions demanding for the removal of, of certain uh, curators, for example, or, or, or board members or, or donors because of their affiliations with unethical businesses. The fact that we're opening a biennial that is very political in substance in terms of the art and the artists that are shown that is very diverse, that is very progressive, that's very engaged uh, in in social justice. And on on the other hand, we have this very unethical practice that's being uh, still supported by the museum as we speak. Um, At the press preview on Monday, there was no mention of this controversy. Uh, and I, I no mention of it by the Whitney or by any of the artists who were there. Fifty artists have uh, Whitney Biennial artists have signed a protest letter, and some Whitney curators and staff members have signed a letter as well. However, the museum, uh, the top museum staff in their press address, didn't directly immediately respond to questions about the removal of Warren B. Kanders, which are very urgent um, requests. Right. Um, Nicholas, what were your questions to the curators? My questions always are, what's the institution going to do? As artists of color, indigenous artists, uh, in these spaces, you know, I respect um, artists that decide not to show at all in them, but also we have to realize that uh, we oftentimes don't have access into these institutions, and our voices are generally silenced by history, as it is. So to be inside of these institutions and doing the work is equally as important, I believe. Um, and I know there's many ways to go about 
this engagement, but uh, there's not really one answer for that. So, well, and this yeah. biennial has been lauded for its diversity. Um, yeah. A lot of women, a lot of people of color, more than one indigenous person, which must be nice oh, to not this like. Oh, it's major. This is historically, statistically, it's not common at all. Absolutely. Across a lot of these institutions and, and biennials. Sydney 2020 Biennial is also really opened up those gates in, in a good way. So um, we're out here. So Shireen, I imagine for a lot of artists who you've talked to, they might have been facing this push-pull that Nicholas describes, where it's like, I have, I'm a young artist, um, I'm an artist who uh, hasn't had the opportunity to show at an institution like the Whitney. The communities that I'm from have traditionally been underrepresented in mainstream art institutions like this. And so now I have this great invitation, and also ethically, I find it to be problematic that Warren B. Kanders is sitting on the board. One artist actually dropped out, is that right? Michael Rakovitz did drop out. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the art is being funded, right? By this money. So it's very problematic. But when you really look at it, all cultural institutions are problematic. In fact, all institutions are problematic. So how do you engage with these dynamics as an artist, as a thinker, even as a journalist? You know, how do you really react and contribute to this conversation and, and, and perhaps help shift it? The Metropolitan Museum this week announced that they were not uh, taking um, funding from the Sackler uh, family. So that's really major. And the Sackler family, again, uh, the makers of OxyContin, who have been indicted in, in federal court. Definitely, and dropped by several other museums. This moment is, is a very important moment in history, in the history of cultural institutions. We're starting to really look not only at the makeup of the artists that are in this space, but also at what, you know, what's behind the white walls, right? Who's funding these walls? How is the PR constructed, right? How's the story told? How's the narrative told? How are the, these artists being presented? Are they being tokenized, for example? You know, I think that's a really important question. And so in this case, I think what's really interesting is that several artists actually reacted to the controversy in their work. And so you have an artist collective like Forensic Architecture. Uh, they created a video that is a direct uh, accusation of Safari Land and um, uh, it shows it shows the use of, of, of non-lethal weapons in several situations, for example, such as Palestine, where they are being, you know, lethal and, and toxic and, and hurting, harming several people. And so that's a direct accusation, right, of of the donor of the space. Um, so I think the tension in the debate itself is interesting. I want to come back to this forensic architecture piece a little bit later, but maybe, Nicholas, you could tell us a little bit about your piece in the show, which is called White Noise American Prayer Rug. Yeah, White Noise American Prayer Rug is conversations surrounding the current climate that we are in right now politically, historically. Can you describe it physically for people who may not sure. be able to get out it's, to see it? It's uh, seven by nine foot, I believe is the dimensions, hand-tied rug that was, that was created in Pakistan. Uh, I worked with artists out there and used traditional techniques and materials and the imagery on the rug is of a TV screen. I know it's a generational conversation now, an analog TV. But when there's no signal, you get the white noise. And the white noise is also uh, something that a drone, droning sound or tone that can is sometimes used to obliterate other sounds. So it's a reference to how the idea of whiteness, a fabricated idea of whiteness, even consumes cultures and communities, consumes our stories, consumes our histories, our bodies, our land, our objects, the disconnect of having no signal and means of communication is also part of this conversation, which is 
uh, embedded in the imagery of the work, the uh, xenophobia that is uh, thrown around, um, not only in our community, in our country, in these lands, but also that affects other communities abroad, reflected in the recent New Zealand atrocity. Mm-hmm. These things have cause and effect in our communities. And, 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 and it, this ties into the conversation of Candor's. This ties into the conversation of the museum. So it seems that obviously uh, the political climate is informing the work that you do. Always. This conversation at the Whitney is not new to indigenous communities. In, in our, it, it's tied into colonialism. It's tied into uh, the settler state that we live in in these places where our communities have been divided by borders that were not here. All of these conversations tie into this conversation at the Whitney. Coming back to the forensic architecture piece. So my understanding is that when the biennial comes calling, sometimes people already have maybe a piece of work that they want to expand on, and sometimes they have to create something that has, doesn't exist yet. Um, and it sounds like forensic architecture used this invitation as a jumping off point to create the piece that they showed at the biennial. Is that right? It seems that it was a direct you know, reaction to, to the moment. Right. You know, they've always been engaged in, in regional politics. And I think for them, there's no other way uh, but to engage directly with any sort of political issue at stake. And my understanding is that it's an 11-minute video narrated by David Byrne. Laura Poitras was also involved in some way. And it outlines the case against Safariland and Warmby Canders in excruciating detail using data and evidence about the ways in which the products that they create are used to kill and maim civilians. I mean, that piece was really striking. It was very powerful. Unfortunately, it's tucked away in the black room, so you don't see it unless you know it's there. Did the curators know about this project in advance? Did did forensic architecture give them warning, hey, we're going to make an inflammatory piece criticizing the Whitney? My understanding is that the curators knew that a lot of the work was going to react uh, directly to these urgent issues in society and to the Kanderis controversy. Uh, but I think the policy is to, to give artists... Um, you know, freedom to express themselves. So, Nicholas, you signed a petition, correct? Yeah, the Verso letter. Right, the Verso letter. Um, talk to me a little bit about your decision to sign this. It's not without risks. I don't think it was a tough decision at all. What does it call for? Does it call for Canada's remo- removal? Yes. When you look at cultural institutions, I'm thinking of MoMA, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the Koch brothers' support of the ballet, all of the money, a lot of the money that our most esteemed cultural institutions are built with mm-hmm. comes from nefarious means. So the problem is institutional. It's a structural problem, right? Because it starts, everything's about money. So if you don't have money as an artist, you can't have a studio, you can't travel, you can't show your work to curators, you can't, and so on and so forth. And so it's the same with, as you said, you know, institutional funding, right? You can't really be on a board if you don't have the means to support. I mean, millions of, we're talking about millions of dollars, right? Who has millions of dollars? So I think there's, there's a project of obviously changing the conversation and the narrative, which we're doing. And then the deeper project of, of shifting the means of the economic means and giving more power to other people so that they can have a say as well. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> it does, and it's a very complicated. Uh, it's it's a complicated issue, right? If we start eliminating funders whose money comes from evil means, who is left? Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do that. So I spoke with uh, the leadership at the museum and they told me that they were taking this question very seriously, that they were having internal conversations about how to react. They didn't want to um, act too fast, I guess for obvious reasons. Uh, but it, it, I think it is still a shock that, you know, as the biennial opens, we still don't have an answer. And speaking of the leadership at the Whitney, it's worth noting that the original petition that was started was by employees of the Whitney who were calling for Candor's ouster. Is that right? Yeah. Is there a call for people to boycott going to see the biennial? Basically, can I go see it and feel okay about it? I haven't heard of any organizing in that sense, have you? I have not. I have not. And it would be unfortunate because the work is very strong. These artists have a lot to say. It's very unapologetic. Um, so I think uh, we can see it as, as a conversation between the institution and the artist and as a real immediate reflection of the time we live in. And it is amazing that this conversation is ongoing and is happening in real time. So I'm happy to see that this is happening around one of the most lauded events in the art world. My relationship to especially institutions and museums uh, as an indigenous artist has always been, it's always been a problematic and political relationship for our communities, all museums. I went to these institutions across the world to research my community and my culture and our objects that were stolen from graves, that were removed from our communities in the process of genocide of our people and our lands, removing our language, removing our objects, literally our bones, which still exist in some of the basements of these spaces. So I have to visit and tour and walk through these halls and go to the basements to to uh, gain uh, connection and understanding to ceremonial objects that have been removed from our, these spaces. So the Whitney's conversation is another facet in this, this building of these institutions, literally even the land these institutions are built on. So, so there's, it, there's a lot of layers that connect all the way back to colonialism and the colonization of America. So, Absolutely. Well, Nicholas, congratulations um, on your pieces in the show. I'm so glad that your voice is included in the show and the voice of other members of Indigenous communities, women, other underrepresented communities as well. Uh, and Shireen, thank you so much for joining us and filling us in on, on this important story. Thank you so much. Thank you. ago, we had the author and historian Hugh Ryan on the show to talk about his new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. The joke is, of course, that Brooklyn is currently so queer that I would be hard-pressed to name a straight person. Our next guest is pushing back against the scourge of straight invisibility, going so far as to write a book about her experience dating people of the opposite sex. I read it, you guys, and I am shook. The lives of straight women are marked with seemingly insurmountable hardships, all because they choose to date men. And in the eternal words of modern-day sage Monique, when you do clownery, the clown comes back to bite. 
Blythe Robertson's book, How to Date Men When You Hate Men, is a revealing book about this poorly understood community. And even if you don't agree with her lifestyle, her words are important, and we are pleased to welcome Blythe to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so Blythe, you uh, identify as a straight, is that right? <laughs> I do, although a lot of queer women on Twitter are tweeting at me that I'm secretly gay, but... How do you feel about that? Do you think that you are secretly gay? I, I don't know. They've really made me stop and consider. I'm like, what will my fans think if I start <laughs> exclusively dating women? But for now, I'm only dating men. That would make an excellent sequel. And I will say anecdotally, (laughs) I only dated men until I was 27. And look at me now. There can be a brighter future ahead for you. Um, Was it hard for your parents when you told them that you were straight? Were they worried that it'd be harder for you? Mm -hmm. They, you know, I try to tell my parents as little as possible, but I think they're probably (laughs) still very worried for me. Your dedication is to your family who should not read the book. Yeah, exactly. Have people in your family read the book? They all read the book. Was there a specific moment or relationship that inspired you to write this book? Um, You know, I wish that there was a great story behind it, but there really wasn't. I knew I wanted to write a book, so I thought about what books I really loved, and one of them was A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes. And I was like, oh, I wish I could write something like that. And the chapters are like three to five pages. So For a book that has a really cute cover and a funny title and looks like it might be sold at Urban Outfitters, you cite Bart a lot. Yeah. What do you you like about, about his writings on relationships and romance? Yeah. I read... The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides, Mm -hmm. which I forgot that I read that exclusively because I was like obsessed with David Foster Wallace. And I was like, this is a book about what it would be like to date David Foster Wallace. And uh, the heroine of that book is really into uh, a lover's discourse. So I read it and it was just like a lot of really heady stuff that I didn't really connect to and a lot of uh, citing like the sorrows of young Verther, which I didn't care about at all. But then it was stuff like the lover... believes that he is loved but also believes that he's not loved and like that is why he's caused so much pain and I'm like oh my god that's me like no one wants to date me but I also truly believe everyone is secretly in love with me and I feel so seen right exactly (laughs) yeah so it was like those kind of small things where I was like even the most brilliant man and like the most stupid woman me like feel the same way in love I guess so you do a lot of qualification in your introduction especially because your title um is I imagine might be off-putting to some people. Right. You have to explain what you mean by hating men and what you mean by men. Right. Um, so maybe you could just give us a little a little glimpse into that. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people have asked me if I hate all men, and it just makes everyone sound like a cop, I feel like, when they ask that. <laughs> like, obviously, I don't hate all men. <laughs> right. Um, but then why'd yeah. you call your book that? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I don't know. Leave me alone. Um, but I cite Mary Poppins in my intro, which is like an insane thing to be the foundation of my politics but in the suffragette song that the bank's kid's mom like sings in the beginning she's like though we adore men individually we agree that as a group they're rather stupid uh which is kind of like where my book is coming from that's an obscure mary poppins song i do have to say that's not the ones that people go to yeah but it is the best one i think uh yeah and i just i love men individually obviously i've written a whole book about having crushes on them about dating them but as a group, they have all the structural power over us, and that's what I don't like, and that's what I'm trying to navigate. And I say in my intro that I'm talking about the men that have the most privilege are like white, cis, straight, educated, um, conventionally attractive men. 
I think that you've hit on a real cultural moment when women yeah. are sort of collectively waking up to this dilemma. Women who coming to grips with the fact that even the wokest bro yeah. is a product of systemic patriarchal thinking. <laughs> I recently like started and then ended a relationship with someone who had a, gi- a giant Bernie sticker on his the back of his like Honda Fit and I was like, "Please tell me you voted for Hillary in the general." And he was like, "Yeah." And then I was like, "Okay." Great. But um, these are the allowances that you have to yeah, make, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like even those people, that guy actually in particular is one of these people, are uncomfortable dating a woman who is like more successful than they are, even though they know that they shouldn't feel badly about it. You refer that. to these people as um, PIWBs, professionally <laughs> insecure woke boys. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a while to even realize that happened to me like five times before I was like, this is a pattern. It's not like I write in the book that I thought, oh, these people didn't like me in particular and they were just trying to come up with an excuse like grasping at a reason because I feel like no one wants to be super rude to other people when they you know turn them down or when they break up with them so they're like oh I just feel weird that like you're on the right of your life and I'm you know not doing anything but then I'm like oh that's actually society telling men that they should feel uncomfortable with that yeah I thought this was a really interesting chapter because you talk about these professionally insecure woke boys who are like no I'm a total feminist I just personally am, yeah. am uncomfortable dating a woman who's more successful than I am. Yeah. And then you also talk about this, you know, active man, passive woman type situation where women spend a lot of their time, especially in their teen years, watching yes. boys do things that they aren't allowed to do for some reason. Right. And I've often wondered, I feel like a lot of female pioneers who succeed in male-dominated fields, like the Sally Rides, yeah. end up being gay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And do you think that there's a connection there? Yeah, I wonder. I mean... Eleanor Roosevelt, another great example. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Yeah. There probably is. I mean, and I should say that the watching men do things is something that I had never even realized I did. And then I read this wonderful essay by Claire Vey Watkins, I want to say is her name. And I was just like, oh, my God, I do that all the time. Let's talk a little bit about your own relationship history. So you write about how you have been bad at flirting or you were bad at flirting for a large portion of your life. And you said that there were times when you thought that you were being aggressive, but that actually you were reading Jonathan Branson's The Corrections in a hot guy's direction while standing in line for an (laughs) improv show. And you were like, I'm being so bold. (laughs) How did you get better? And what are your general flirting tips for men and women? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I think a lot of getting better for me was, and this is so annoying. If I was watching this, I'd be like, that is not a tip. But I feel like just being more like loving to myself and confident in myself is just like attractive to other people in a way that makes no sense to me. Like I write that I'm not on apps. And so I have to follow up whenever I see a hot person. I just like have to talk to that person. I have to like get their information. And I feel like people are just, everyone is like a gaping hole that wants to be loved. And if you just pay attention to anyone, they will be nice to you, I think. So just like follow up and like talk to people. That's, if you were on a dating app, that would be a great dating profile. Just (laughs) a gaping hole who wants to be loved. loved. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You mentioned that you're not on apps because you feel like they promote a capitalist commodities-based yeah. system. You create a profile for yourself where you're like, this is my logo. This this is like what my brand is. These are the most attractive photos of me that like a consumer would want. So you're kind of like obviously thinking not about who you really are, but like what is the most attractive version of you. And then on the other end, you're like seeing every person as like a potential uh, I know you're basically like shopping for a boyfriend kind of, or it's like almost a game. Uh, 
and you have so much choice that you feel like there's always someone better out there and it's really easy to like dehumanize people, which is not necessarily, I think, the best starting point for like trying to connect with someone. Because I just feel like it's hard enough to, as a woman in society, to feel worth divorced from whether or not I'm fuckable. Uh, and that was just going to make it worse. So who are you seeing right now? Can you divulge this? Um, yeah, I feel bad because it's so early in the relationship, but a, a very nice for once in my life, I'm seeing someone who's like not a creative person. He like loves the Yankees and like is like an <laughs> athlete. He like wakes up and does pull ups. It's crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> like, oh, my God. Wow. Humans can have bodies. Uh, yeah, he's very nice. Um, talk to me about so you're, you're a comedian um, and you write about the concept of punching up. Yeah, And yeah. you apply that to flirting. What do you mean by that? Right. So in comedy, punching up is like when you are trying to figure out if a joke is okay um, to make one standard. And it's not like foolproof, but is like, are you making fun of someone who has less power than you? If so, that's not cool. So like you, there was a lot of talk. That's bullying. Right, that's bullying. Mm. So Lindy West wrote a an essay about this when the whole like rape joke thing was going on when everyone's like, is it okay to joke about rape? And she was like, if you're making fun of people who get raped, that's punching down. Those are people who have no power. But if you're making fun of like rapists or rape culture, that's like a different thing. Um, so that's just like an easy rule of thumb for comedy. And I was thinking about flirting in the workplace even before the whole Harvey Weinstein stuff broke. And I was just like, it's you have to make sure you're not flirting with someone who has like wildly less power than you do because those people, like if you are an intern, like a female intern and the CEO is flirting with you, you can't just like be like, ew, gross, don't talk to me and like report him to HR because like he's the head of everything. So it was just kind of a way to be like, when you're flirting with someone at work specifically, which is already kind of like a quagmire, think about that before you do. That seems like such a no-brainer. Yeah. And yet <laughs> we're living in a world in which everyone is harassing everyone. Right. So, we have to find yeah. all of these different metaphors and analogies to help people understand this concept. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just a brief pause to say that you you mentioned a really good rule of thumb, I think, which is the two-question rule. Yes. Yeah. Ask, you get to ask two questions of someone, and if they don't ask you a question back and they don't engage... You're done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's from Allie Jones on Gawker, I want to say. And I just, I wish that could be like one of the things on the MTA where they're like, don't manspread. Yes. Like, don't let her. Just like, you can ask a woman two questions and then that's it. And then let her finish her book. Right, exactly. Oh, God, it's so hard out here in these streets. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, Blythe, thank you so much. I really enjoyed reading the book. It's very funny. Thank you. Um, and I'm glad that you are in a relationship with a human who seems to be <laughs> worthwhile. Also, I recommend women at some point, but, yeah. you know, you got to do you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to swipe right or review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Lee, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 